My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 20, Death of the Aristocracy. If the last episode was dedicated to how the revolutionaries declared war on the church, well, then this episode will be dedicated to how they started a war with the nobility. Not only will we be covering the death of the aristocracy, but we'll be covering the death of a very important aristocrat as well. If you follow the Facebook page, you already know who I'm talking about, as the anniversary of his death was just days ago. If not, well, you're about to find out. Now before we jump into it, a big thank you to those members of the Grey History community who are either supporting the show on Patreon or spreading the word about Grey History. We just clocked up our 10,000th download yesterday, so a big, warm, revolutionary thank you for all your support. Anyway, without further ado, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 20, Death of the Aristocracy. Right from the outset of the French Revolution, the response of the two privileged orders was strikingly different. Even as the Estates General commenced in May 1789, the first and second estates adopted divergent attitudes towards the nation's desires. The first estate, dominated by the members of the lower clergy, initially welcomed the revolution and the demands of the third. As the Estates General commenced in Versailles, 114 clerical deputies voted in favour of joining the second and third estates as one unified national chamber. While 133 voted against the measure, the fact that almost half of the First Estates delegates initially supported voting by head is telling. As deadlock gripped the Assembly, it was the members of the First Estate that were key to progressing the revolution. Abbe Siez may have been a member of the First Estate, but he was elected as a representative of the Third. It was Siez who suggested that the Third unilaterally verify all representatives and in the days that followed, it was common priests who gave the third their much-needed revolutionary momentum by breaking away from their own order. Despite the king demanding that each estate sit independently on the 23rd of June, the next day, the first estate defiantly voted to join the National Assembly. Dominated by members of the common-born lower clergy, the first estate's disposition towards the revolution was notably different to that of the aristocracy. Whereas in the first estate, a small aristocratic elite resisted the revolution, in the second estate, a small aristocratic elite embraced the revolution. The two privileged orders were, in a sense, mirror images of each other. Unlike the first estate, the majority of the second estate's deputies refused to play ball with the upstarts in the commons. Even on the 25th of June, the day after the clergy had voted to join with the commons, 
only 46 noble deputies followed the Duc d'Orléans to break away from their own order and join the National Assembly. Roughly five-sixths of the aristocracy's representatives refused to budge until the king ordered them to do so. The intransigency of the aristocratic deputies reflects the broader ideology of the Second Estate. While some liberal nobles played prominent roles in leading the revolution of 1789, these individuals were firmly in the minority. Despite being far from homogenous, as a whole, the order can be said to have been quite conservative in nature. Many nobles were sceptical or even alarmed by the events of the summer of 1789, and the ideas propagated by the revolution conflicted with the worldviews of many in the conservative aristocracy. It is important to remember that from a young age, nobles had been indoctrinated in a fundamentally racist ideology. Taught to believe that they were genetically superior to the common man, blue-blooded nobles considered themselves to be smarter, braver, and wiser than the commoner in the third estate. Aristocrats were superior in the art of war and unequalled in the management of state affairs. This hierarchical worldview justified why nobles had the prominent, privileged and exclusive existence that they enjoyed within French society, and indeed within medieval Europe more broadly. While we in the modern world might scoff at this fundamentally racist worldview, some amongst the French nobility genuinely believed in this genetic distinction between the elites and the commons. As a result of this ideology, many aristocrats were on a collision course with the revolution right from the start. While historian Jonathan Israel states that outright conflict between revolution and church was wholly certain from the outset, I would argue that conflict between revolution and nobility was the true inevitability. While some aristocrats were willing to cooperate with the new regime, and while some even aspired to lead the new regime, the vast majority of the order clung to an ideology and disposition that was too conservative to simply coexist with the revolution's radical and progressive ideology. Immediately leading the charge against the revolution was the king's youngest brother, the Comte d'Artois. Leading up to the revolution, the Comte d'Artois was openly hostile to the aspirations of the Third Estate. In December 1788, Artois and other leading aristocrats penned a joint letter to the king, condemning the Third's aspirations for taxation equality and greater political power. Artois' hostile disposition towards the people and towards the people's champion, Jacques Necker, only grew with time. By July 1789, Artois was championing the argument in favour of a military crackdown against the National Assembly and was one of the key agitators for Necker's dismissal. Even after the fall of the Bastille and the king's failed coup d'etat, the count begged King Louis to re-attempt suppressing Paris by force. Accepting that this would not occur, but far from accepting the defeat of the old regime, Artois departed Paris on the night of the 16th of July and headed for the frontier. Joining the count were several leading families, including the Condes, the Contesses and the Poignacs. Just a month after the creation of the National Assembly, the noble emigration had begun. Originally setting up in the northern Italian city of Turin, then part of the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, the Comte d'Artois and his court found themselves in modern-day Germany by early 1791. From the safety of friendly European states, the ultra-royalists schemed the downfall of the revolution. In their self-imposed exile, the counter-revolutionaries devised elaborate plots, 
formulated intricate schemes, strategized detailed conspiracies, and most importantly, engaged in never-ending squabbles about which idea was better. While Artois and his companions frightened many revolutionaries, and while it is reasonable that they did so, in reality it was quite some time before this potential threat actually had any teeth. Although impossible to know at the time, Artois and his associates were originally far more akin to a comical circus than a counter-revolutionary cabal. The actions of Artois, however, do not reflect the initial response of most members of the nobility. Unlike the king's youngest brother, at first, most members of the second estate decided to engage with the revolution. Like some members of the first estate, several debates throughout 1789 tested the limits of the aristocratic deputies, but none forced these deputies to abandon their cooperation with the revolution en masse. The abolition of privileges could have become a flashpoint, but the subsequent classification of so many privileges as property meant that many noble interests weren't blatantly disregarded. The nationalisation of church land also threatened cooperation between the privileged orders and the National Assembly, but again, schism was avoided. Yet the latter half of 1789 was by no means all sunshine and rainbows for the second estate. The Great Fear witnessed the targeting of many aristocrats and their properties, and the municipal revolution deprived others of their long-held leadership within their local communities. 1789 had seen many in the nobility go from a privileged person to an ostracised other, and the revolutionary publications depicting the first and second estates as parasites leeching off the nation only exacerbated tensions. While the third estate was establishing revolutionary ceremonies and traditions to celebrate national unity and harmony, the fact of the matter was that many nobles had found 1789 quite traumatic and nothing to celebrate about. Unfortunately for these aristocrats, however, 1790 would be even worse. The cooperative attitude of the Assembly's aristocratic deputies began to shift in April 1790. By April, it had become clear that the Assembly was planning to nationalise not just the land belonging to the regular clergy, but all ecclesiastical property. Many deputies originating from the first and second estates had assumed that the Assembly would not confiscate all church property, but instead focus on selling the property belonging to the regular clergy, particularly the monastic orders, which had been abolished in February. But the Assembly was in fact planning to sell property belonging to both closed monasteries and open parishes, and understandably, this enraged many members of the first and second estate who felt that they had been misled. With the conservative faction of the legislature infuriated by the Assembly's proposal, a Patriot deputy sought to ease tensions with a new decree. That deputy was Dom Gerl, a Carthusian monk who held influence and respect amongst various factions within the Assembly. A member of the increasingly radical Jacobin Club and an enthusiastic supporter of the revolution, the progressive monk proposed on the 12th of April that Catholicism be proclaimed the sole religion of the state. Now what Gilles was up to here is debated amongst historians. Most see the proposal as a symbolic gesture which sought to alleviate concerns amongst conservative deputies that the assembly was becoming increasingly anti-clerical. Some historians, however, think that the progressive deputy was laying a well-planned trap, hoping to defuse opposition to the sale of church lands by robbing opponents of their ability to point to the assembly's anti-church bias once the decree was passed. 
Whatever Dom Gell's true intentions, the measure failed to create any sort of agreement or unity within the assembly. In fact, far from creating unity, it threatened to jeopardise the public peace. The American William Short detailed the situation to John Jay in a letter on the 23rd of April. Short, who had been appointed the new American ambassador to France just days before, recounted the uproar that Dom Gell's proposal unleashed. Dom Gell, a Carthusian monk, a member of the assembly, remarkable for his probity of character and still more for the zeal with which he had uniformly supported the principles of the revolution, moved that previous to the sale of the ecclesiastical property, the assembly should declare the Roman Catholic religion the religion of the nation. This motion was immediately supported and amended by the members of the clergy and noblesse. Many desired to pass it over in silence, as a subject which it was too dangerous to touch, but a large number were for meeting in front and finally deciding it. The heat and the tumult which immediately took place in the assembly and the advanced hour of the day induced an adjournment till the next morning. A rumour was immediately spread among the people of Paris that the aristocrats were making a final effort to prevent the sale of ecclesiastical property. Many false reports were added, perhaps designedly, so that in a few hours the different districts assembled and all Paris seemed at the moment of general explosion. The members of the clergy and noblesse of the assembly held a meeting at the same time in the convent of the Capuchins, whilst those of the most popular part of the assembly met as usual in the convent of Jacobins. In the former, it was agreed that they should go early the next day to the assembly in full dress, and if they lost the question to proceed immediately to the palace, protest against the proceedings of the assembly, and throw themselves on the king's protection. Some of the more zealous and more enthusiastic proposed that from thence they should disperse themselves in the streets and public places of Paris, crying out to the people that the Roman Catholic religion was attacked and that the Protestants had a majority in the assembly. Far from uniting the assembly and allowing the deputies to move past the contentious debate surrounding the nationalisation of church land, Dom Gell's proposal merely caused more friction between the legislature's factions. A decree proclaiming Catholicism as the sole religion of the nation was fundamentally at odds with the core principles of the revolution, and unsurprisingly, many centrist and progressive deputies refused to back the measure. After one of, if not the most passionate and divisive debates of the National Assembly, Dom Gell's proposal was voted down. The failure of the decree further divided the Assembly, already described by one deputy as two factions ready to make war. Far from being an olive branch for peace, the proposal merely acted as more fuel for the fires of discontent. In their outrage against the decree's failure, in the following days, 300 conservatives met in nearby convent to draw up a formal protest against the Assembly's heretical decision. Not only did this protest reject the Assembly's decision, but through its very creation, it rejected the Assembly's legitimacy. Worse still, this rejection was formulated by members of the Assembly. These noble and clerical deputies had not yet broken with the revolution, but in publicly and formally rejecting the Assembly's authority, they were standing on the precipice of doing just that. Further, enraging progressive deputies, 
the Conservatives then distributed thousands of pamphlets throughout the nation which denounced the Assembly's decision. The result was blood in the streets. On the 20th of April 1790, a crowd in Nimois drew up a petition demanding Catholicism be proclaimed the sole religion of the state. 5,000 people signed the petition. Violent clashes broke out on the 2nd and 3rd of May, leaving one dead and several more wounded. Nimois would be the site of more than 300 deaths a month later, while the towns of Montaubar and Uzes would also experience noteworthy unrest. This popular unrest was the first tangible sign that the religious decisions of Paris had the potential to disturb the national peace. The actions of the conservative deputies and the unrest they fermented confirmed the suspicions of patriot deputies that the power of the Catholic Church was a threat to the revolution. Furthermore, that the threat had to be neutralised. The infamous civil constitution of the clergy, which sought to subjugate the church to the state, was revealed less than eight weeks after Girl's controversial proposal. As historian Timothy Tackett notes, Thus, the dom Girl affair and the great debates of April 1790 played a critical role in the evolving psychology of the Assembly and helped lay the groundwork for a sweeping reorganisation of the French church that would have been quite inconceivable for the great majority of the deputies only a few months earlier. The dom affair and the associated nationalisation of church property created considerable resentment amongst many conservative aristocrats. But while the events of April 1790 entrenched divisions within the Assembly, and while it drove noble and clerical deputies almost to the point of schism, it was the events of June 1790 which propelled many aristocrats into the arms of the counter-revolution. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. 
You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. On the 19th of June, 1790, as the Assembly discussed plans for the upcoming Festival of the Federation, a deputy by the name of Lambel put forth a radical proposal. The lawyer from Villafranche de Rouergue suggested to the Assembly that the body suppress noble titles. In other words, that the Assembly ban the use of titles such as Duke, Count, Viscount, Baron, Marquis, Esquire, and any other honorific title used by the French aristocracy. This day, we dig the grave of vanity. I move that all persons be prohibited from taking the titles of peer, duke, count, marquis, etc., and that nobility be no longer hereditary. This truly radical proposal was then wholeheartedly supported by the progressive aristocrat Charles de la Mette. Hereditary nobility shocks reason and is repugnant to true liberty. There is no political equality, no emulation left for virtue, where citizens have any other dignity but that which is annexed to the offices they fill, any other glory but that which they owe to their actions. Going on to declare that nobles ought to be prohibited from using titles in letters, documents, or any other forms of writing, Charles de la Mette was one of many nobles who led the assault against their own order. Popular within the Jacobin Club and amongst the people of Paris, la Mette was a veteran of the American Revolutionary War and a rival to Lafayette. Not to be outdone, the hero of two worlds thus threw his support behind the motion. Lafayette proclaimed, This motion is so necessary that I do not believe it needs any support. But if it does, I declare that I am for it with all my heart. Deputy after deputy proclaimed their support for the motion and made alterations as they did so. Under the final proposal, not only would noble titles be banned, but any public display of social superiority. Coats of arms, uniforms, the use of titles on documentation, any and all symbols of aristocracy would be forbidden. Realistically, what was being proposed was not just the suppression of noble titles, but the abolition of nobility itself. The progressives declared that equality, true equality, required the abolition of these noble titles. Repugnant to reason, liberty, to the constitution which the deputies were slowly crafting, the existence of the aristocracy violated just about every principle the revolution held dear, and thus, for the good of the nation, nobility had to be suppressed. Unsurprisingly, this attack, this assault, this unanticipated aggression against their noble rank, shocked and subsequently enraged the conservative aristocrats of the assembly. Forcefully arguing against the proposed changes, conservative deputies lined up to defend their aristocracy. The principal argument used by the conservative nobles in defence of their status was that nobility and monarchy were interlinked. You could not have one without the other. Rejecting the notion that the existence of an aristocracy infringed on liberty, Abbe Marie, who himself was not an aristocrat, defended the rights of the nobility. The son of a cobbler proclaimed, The Romans had orders of knighthood, and yet were free. 
In France, the nobility is constitutional. To destroy it is to destroy the monarchy. Other conservatives took a different line of approach. Some aristocrats argued that the Declaration of the Rights of Man protected property rights and therefore their prerogatives. Others proclaimed that their noble status was ordained by God himself and that no institution of men could take it from them. The Count de Escars vigorously defended his God-given noble rank. There is no power on earth that can prevent me from leaving my title of nobility to my descendants, a title that was given only by God. Several noble deputies, who previously participated seldomly, if at all, in debates, rose to say their piece. The public galleries, however, would have none of it. The motion was immensely popular with the common people, and the commons and the galleries shouted down many aristocrats who wished to defend their rights. Realising that the vote was going to go against them, the Conservatives played for time, and argued that such a decree could not pass at such a late session in the evening. But the Assembly had been worked up into a frenzy, and the majority insisted on an immediate vote. The debate, which had become incredibly venomous, had seen nobles being equated to the evils of feudalism, and it was claimed by one deputy that it was time to return France to a period before feudalism, where all men were considered equal. Rejecting this history as fanciful, and seeking to delay the vote, Abbé Marie, the great conservative orator, tried one final time to prevent the death of the aristocracy. As was so often the case, he failed. On the evening of the 19th of June 1790, the Assembly voted to abolish nobility. Regularly interrupted by the galleries, Marie failed to convince his peers that it was not wise to destroy without discussion an institution which is as ancient as the monarchy. The priest, however, was right in this regard. It was indeed unwise to destroy an institution which was as ancient as the monarchy itself. If the civil constitution of the clergy, which had been revealed three weeks earlier and which would be passed three weeks later, could be considered a declaration of war against the Catholic Church, then the suppression of noble titles can be considered a declaration of war against the aristocracy. Many aristocrats who had tried to engage with the revolution now rejected it. In the eyes of most nobles, the decision of the assembly was loathsome and repugnant. One must remember that many nobles genuinely believed that they were the members of a superior warrior class. Many genuinely believed that their ancestors had fought and died for France, and that their titles reflected not only these sacrifices, but the good deeds done for the church and state over the previous centuries. In repudiating nobility, for many nobles, the assembly had repudiated their fundamental sense of self. It had repudiated their honour, their history, their God. In doing so, the assembly had made an enemy of the warrior class. Henceforth, that class would wage war on the assembly. Now, before we get into the great noble emigration that commences as a result of this, I do want to touch on a couple of items of note regarding the abolition of nobility. Firstly, I want to discuss some of the historiography surrounding the decision, 
And secondly, I want to note a very interesting observation regarding who led this monumental reform. Unsurprisingly, the abolition of nobility, like all major revolutionary reforms, elicits a wide range of responses from historians. An interesting opinion of note is that of historian Francois Mignet. While the revolutionaries are often criticised for needlessly provoking the nobility, Mignet argues that this isn't the case at all. The revolutionaries didn't so much cause the conflict with the nobility, but rather merely provided hostile nobles with the excuse they needed to finally declare their long-held opposition. Summarising the day's events, Mignet states, This sitting established equality everywhere and made things agree with words by destroying all the pompous paraphernalia of other times. Formerly, titles had designated functions, armorial bearings had distinguished powerful families, liveries had been worn by whole armies of vassals, orders of knighthood had defended the state against foreign foes, Europe against Islamism. But now, nothing of this remained. Titles had lost their truth and their fitness. Nobility, after ceasing to be a magistracy, had even ceased to be an ornament, and power, like glory, was henceforth to spring from plebeian ranks. But whether the aristocracy set more value on their titles than on their privileges, or whether they only awaited a pretext for openly declaring themselves, this last measure, more than any other, decided the emigration and its attacks. It was for the nobility what the civil constitution had been for the clergy, an occasion rather than a cause of hostility. Mignant hints that the abolition of nobility merely gave hostile nobles a pretext to divorce themselves from the revolution and join the forces of the old regime. I'm not convinced. Undoubtedly, the abolition of nobility was used by some members of the counter-revolution to co-opt others to join their ranks. It was certainly used as a rallying cry by the forces of the old regime, a casus belli against the new order. But for many nobles, I'm not certain that, to use Mignet's words, the abolition of nobility was merely an occasion to commence hostility. For some nobles, I do think it was the cause. The passion in which some aristocrats protested this decree, both during the debate and afterwards, suggests to me that for some nobles, this was the cause of their hostility. Historian William Smith does not embrace historian Mignet's belief that this controversial law merely provided the pretense for the aristocracy to declare their opposition. Referencing the opinions of the Marquis de Ferrière, historian William Smith declares the decree unwise and needlessly provocative. The decree was considered by the Marquis de Ferrière as but impolitique. It set the feeling of honour in opposition to the national interest, amid a numerous body of men, who possessed a large part of the wealth of France at the time. Hitherto, the nobles had suffered patiently enough the hostile measures of the assembly, but now became irreconcilable enemies of the revolution, and a league was formed between the nobility, clergy and the parliaments, and they laboured with equal spirit and activity against a new order of things, which they could no longer tolerate for a moment as it left them without a name or a place, the mere images and spectres of their former greatness. Indeed, on every account, the decree was impolitic. The nobility had in reality been already put down when they were refused their separate constitutional existence at the opening of the states, 
and had been mingled among the Third Estate and the National Assembly. And again, when on the night of the 4th of August their feudal prerogatives, distinctions and property were, without the slightest discrimination or reservation, all swept away and abolished. Lastly, when they were to be like other citizens of the Electoral Assembly. The influence, therefore, of their mere titles would have been gradually lost, and there was no need of outraging them in this tenderest point by depriving them of their last illusion of their feelings and the sole surviving pride and treasure of their hearts. That last line is key. The nobility had been deprived of their sole surviving pride, of the treasure of their hearts. In researching this episode, I've read many accounts and speeches from members of the nobility who were clearly pained by the Assembly's decision. The passion in which they reject the decree is evident. The pain in their words engulfs you as you read them. It does appear to me that this decision by the Assembly did create significant anger towards the revolution. This may have been just the latest in a long series of attacks against the aristocracy, but it was the attack which cut the deepest wound. The rejection of their blood, of their history, of their God, demanded a response. Something had to be done. Thanks to the decree of June 1790, the aristocracy was now dead. But the counter-revolution had never been more alive. Noteworthy item number two regarding the abolition of the nobility is who led the charge. Much is made about the French Revolution being a bourgeois revolution. How the French bourgeoisie or the French middle class led the attack against the old regime and ushered in a new age of European government. To paraphrase the Marxist historian Peter Kruipten, the assembly represented the educated middle classes who sought to conquer and organise the power of the state. But as historian Simon Sharma notes, the attack against nobility in June 1790 was not led by the bourgeoisie. It was not led by the middle class. It was led by the aristocracy. Its biggest proponents included Lafayette and Lamotte, two prominent aristocrats with military backgrounds to boot. Furthermore, other major reforms against the institutions of the old regime weren't led by commoners, but by members of the nobility. The suppression of the ancient parlements was led in part by Duport, a member of the Paris Parlement and an aristocrat. The assault against the church was initiated by Talleyrand, another assassin within, and another aristocrat. According to Simon Sharma, the abolition of nobility merely demonstrates clearly what is too often overlooked. While regularly described as a bourgeois revolution, the great reforms of the revolution of 1789 were led primarily by aristocrats. The most remarkable thing about these transformations was that they were, once again overwhelmingly, the work of aristocrats, see Devant nobles. Though numerically, aristocrats did not dominate the assembly. The working committees that drafted the constitution and provided France with the shape of its new institutions were monopolised by a relatively small intellectual elite, many of whom had known each other before the revolution and a striking number of whom had been officers of the old monarchy in either the army, judiciary, government or church. The one thing the constituent assembly was manifestly not was bourgeois. 
An interesting and indeed refreshing observation from historian Simon Sharma. But while the historiography surrounding the abolition of nobility is fascinating, so too are its consequences. The first consequence of note is that it permanently crystallised the divide between the nation and the nobility. In a period of 18 months, the aristocracy had gone from privileged people to ostracised others. For most, this fall from grace had been utterly traumatic. The violence of the great fear, the spontaneous bouts of anti-aristocratic unrest, the extrajudicial murder of nobles and seizure of their property, had driven many aristocrats to despair. But the actions of the assembly in June showed that, far from intending to save them, the new regime intended to institutionalise this assault against the nobility. Through this suppression of the aristocracy, the greatest indignity had been bestowed upon them, having been robbed of power, of property, of prestige, of privilege. They had been robbed of their identity. Reading letters, diaries and royalist publications make it clear that many nobles felt victimised by the new regime. They had been assaulted, robbed, vilified, degraded. These social elites were now social pariahs. Historian Ippolite Tane recounts multiple letters from distressed nobles lamenting their position in the new regime. One letter from the French Comte reads, It is absolutely in opposition to the rights of man to find oneself in perpetual fear of having one's throat cut by scoundrels who are daily confounding liberty with license. A second letter from Champagne reads, I never knew anything so weary as this anxiety about property and security. Never was there a better reason for it. A moment suffices to let loose an intractable population which thinks that it may do what it pleases and which is carefully sustained in that error. Another letter foreshadows the future. We are not so base to endure it. Our right to resist oppression is not due to a decree of the National Assembly, but to natural law. We are going to leave, and to die if necessary. But to live under such a revolting anarchy, should it not be broken up, we shall never set foot in France again. That final letter captures the sentiment of many in the former privileged order. Having cemented the division between nation and nobility, the abolition of aristocracy's immediate effect was to trigger another great wave of emigration throughout France. With the suppression of their order now used as a rallying cry, thousands of nobles, particularly young men and members of the armed forces, uprooted themselves from their homes and marched towards the frontiers. Referred to as émigrés, the royalist press urged these young nobles on as they prepared to fight for God, King and tax exemptions. Having been victimised and ostracised by the revolution, these nobles saw resistance as not only just, but also as the only option left. Remaining in France was no longer a possibility. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. 
He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Now, it's important to note that the number of émigrés is relatively small. Even by the end of 1791, a whole 18 months after the abolition of nobility, and six months after the flight to Varennes, the number of émigrés was perhaps little more than 10,000. But the idea of hundreds of nobles crossing the border sparked dread amongst the revolutionaries. This was, after all, the military elite of France which was departing. They took with them knowledge and wealth, which they openly proclaimed they intended to use to overturn the new regime. Furthermore, the royalist press, although much smaller than the pro-revolutionary press, applauded these counter-revolutionary intentions. Using the same press freedoms that allowed radical papers to agitate for further reform, conservative publications called on the nobility to join their brothers-in-arms and fight against the evils of the assembly. The assembly which defied God and King, and was no doubt controlled by sinister Protestants, Jews and Freemasons. The British ambassador Earl Gowler recalls his astonishment of how many nobles openly declared their intentions to fight for King, Country and Counter-Revolution. On December 17th, 1790, the British ambassador wrote... The aristocratic party expresses openly in public their hopes of a speedy counter-revolution. It is certain that the capital is regarded with a jealous eye by the provinces, which jealousy is industriously fermented by all those, a considerable number indeed, who are dissatisfied with the present government. Three people have been lately taken up and sent to the prison of Pierre and Sice near Lyon on account of the discovery of a treasonable plot, and between hope and fear, Many people attached to the former system are daily quitting Paris. With the ranks of the counter-revolution swelling, and with sinister plots being discovered amongst those nobles who stayed behind, the progressives of the assembly demanded radical laws to prevent immigration. In February 1791, the assembly fiercely debated proposals that would deprive emigres of their civil rights and confiscate their property as well. The debate, which came to a head on the 28th of February 1791, was fuelled by the fact that the king's own aunts had tried to depart Paris. Proponents of the laws argued that allowing emigration was the equivalent of endangering the state since the émigrés openly declared their intention to wage war on the revolutionary regime. Opponents to the proposed emigration laws argued that personal liberty could not be constrained, and that any restrictions on emigration violated the principles of liberty enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man. Jean-Francois Rubel, like most radical Jacobins, countered this opposition with a simple but effective argument. 
You say that a law against emigrants is contrary to the Constitution. I say that, without such a law, we shall have no Constitution. In the heat of the debate, Mirabeau, the then President of the National Assembly, rose to give one of his best speeches. At the height of his power and at the pinnacle of his career, Mirabeau denounced the proposals supported by the radical Jacobin deputies, proclaiming that depriving emigres of their rights and property was utterly draconian. Mirabeau insisted that such a measure violated liberty. As a result, Mirabeau theatrically declared he would renounce his loyalties to the French state should it embrace such tyranny. The horror expressed on the reading of this project proves that this is a law worthy of being placed in the Code of Draco and cannot find a place among the decrees of the National Assembly of France. I proclaim that I shall consider myself released from every oath of fidelity I have made towards those who may be infamous enough to nominate a dictatorial commission. The popularity I covet and which I have the honour to enjoy is not a feeble reed. I wish it to take root in the soil based on justice and liberty. Interrupted often by deputies on the far left, Mirabeau shouted at them to hold their tongues. Although publicly breaking with the leadership of the Jacobin Club, of which he was a member of, the then President of the Assembly won his battles for the day. Not only did Mirabeau defeat the proposed law on emigration, but when Duport and Lamette tried to expel him from the Jacobin Club that evening, Mirabeau, the brilliant orator, was able to survive this attempted purge. Through his unexpectedly successful and noteworthy presidency, and through the defeat of the controversial emigration bill, by March 1791, Mirabeau was at the height of his power. Although despised by some of his colleagues, and repulsive to some members of the court, Mirabeau enjoyed immense popularity with the public, and many historians describe the Count as being at the pinnacle of his career. The British ambassador wrote on the 4th of May, The government of the kingdom seems to be going fast into the hands of Mr de Mirabeau, whose conduct since his presidency and his election as one of the administrators of the Department of Paris has been much and deservedly applauded. It was not only publicly that Mirabeau held power. Privately he did too. Or at least so he thought. Since May 1790, Mirabeau had been secretly working for the court. Advising the king and queen behind closed doors, the people's champion was actually championing the interests of royalty. Although the king and queen did not trust Mirabeau, nor think a great deal of his advice, Mirabeau thought he had their confidence. Thus, with the power he held publicly, and the power he thought he held privately, Mirabeau was eager to exert his influence, to consolidate the revolution, to tame the increasingly radical Jacobin Club, and to cement the new constitutional monarchy. Before we get into what Mirabeau did with his newfound power, I do want to take the time to discuss the wide range of views on Mirabeau's actions. Understandably, Mirabeau's secret dealings with the court inspire no shortage of detractors. Furthermore, his intrigues were by no means light. 
In response to the increasing radicalism of Paris, embodied in political clubs such as the Jacobins, Mirabeau advised the king to flee the capital. From the safety of the provinces, the count advised Louis to rally his banners and pursue a policy of civil war. That's right. The champion of the third estate was secretly advising the king to wage civil war against the revolution. Mirabeau felt that this was the only way to break Paris's grip on the government and to tame the increasingly radical Parisian clubs, societies and sections which threatened the longevity of the new regime. In other cynical manoeuvrings, Mirabeau advised that the controversial civil constitution of the clergy could be used by the king to help foster discontent against the assembly and thus bolster his own position in the event of civil war. These secret dealings outraged the public when they were eventually discovered and are slammed by some historians. A point of particular notoriety was the fact that Mirabeau was doing all of this for a paycheck. The famous rake was in significant debt, and Mirabeau was selling his influence to resolve his financial difficulties. It's this secret manoeuvring for royal bribes that earns the condemnation of historians. Some historians, such as George Lefebvre, conclude that Mirabeau was a corrupt, self-interested politician who was deficient in both morals and principles. For the right price, Mirabeau could be bought and his self-interested schemes were motivated not by patriotism, but by personal enrichment. Not all historians are so critical, however. In fact, it's far easier to find historians with sympathetic views of Mirabeau's deceitful activities. Historian Francois Mignet notes that many revolutionaries colluded with the court, and that one cannot be attacked for working with the monarch when belonging to a nation that was a constitutional monarchy. Rejecting the notion that Mirabeau was a man without principles, the Count's mistake, according to Mignet, was accepting payment for his actions. After having been one of the chief authors of reforms, he sought to give it stability by enchaining faction. His object was to convert the court to the revolution, not to give up the revolution to the court. The support he offered was constitutional. He could not offer any other for his power depended on his popularity and his popularity on his principles. But he was wrong in suffering it to be bought, had not his immense necessities obliged him to accept money and sell his counsels. He would not have been more blamable than the unalterable Lafayette, the Lamarts and the Girardins who successfully negotiated with it. Historian Bertha Gardiner takes a different view and represents a perspective more in the middle ground of the debate. Rejecting the notion that Mirabeau was a man without principles, Gardiner points out that Mirabeau had always been a monarchist, and had always been a supporter of a strong executive branch of government. However, Mirabeau's actions were also influenced by personal ambition. Long desiring to replace Necker and head the royal ministry himself, historian Bertha Gardiner notes that Mirabeau's counsel to the king benefited his own personal ambitions. It is wrong to regard Mirabeau as having been false to his principles because he entered into a pecuniary transaction with the king. He was a monarchist before 1789 and he died one in 1791. But the low moral elevation of his character vitiated his judgment and increased the difficulties in his path. 
By taking money of the king, he was precluded from the possibility of obtaining his confidence. Louis and Marie Antoinette never regarded him otherwise than as a dangerous demagogue bought over. The distrust in which his fellow deputies held him was not without justification. He was quite unscrupulous as to what means he employed to gain his ends, and he did not hesitate to speak words in direct opposition to his real opinion, nor to support measures in which he deemed injurious, in order to lower the assembly in the opinion of the country, and increase the possibility of bringing about a reaction in the royal favour. It is difficult to doubt that his intense mortification at being excluded from the ministry made him more ready to countenance the idea of civil war. So, what to make of Mirabeau? Like historian Bertha Gardiner, I personally fall somewhere in the middle. I reject the idea that Mirabeau was a man without any principles. He stylized himself as a champion of liberty, and his work with the court didn't preclude this. Since the Estates General, Mirabeau had made good on his promise to be the dog that would bite despotism to death. He laboured tirelessly to create a new French monarchy based on Enlightenment principles. He was a key architect of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. He sought not only to destroy the privileges and excesses of the old regime, but build a worthy replacement. And that's important because it explains his motivation to aid the court. As the revolution progressed, Mirabeau genuinely feared that his life's work would amount to the destruction of France, not lead to its rejuvenation. He genuinely believed that the Jacobins had become too extreme, that the radical press, the revolutionary societies, the Parisian sections had turned the capital into a breeding ground of populism and republicanism. Mirabeau feared the revolution would go too far, and thus he endeavoured to stabilise it. Failure to do so, he believed, would threaten not just the new regime, but liberty itself. In regards to his principles, not only was the Count a firm advocate of liberty, but Mirabeau had always been a monarchist as well. As demonstrated by his writings and his position on debates, such as the King's absolute veto, Mirabeau had been a monarchist long before he entered the pay of the court. In dealing secretly with the crown, I believe that Mirabeau was faithful to his principles. But it cannot be ignored that he was also faithful to his personal ambitions. Mirabeau was undoubtedly using his position to bolster his own fortunes. Not only did he accept secret payment for his counsel, aka bribes, but the Count developed plans that would further empower and enrich himself. Had the King followed his plans for civil war, it is beyond doubt that Mirabeau would have pushed for his own installation as the King's chief minister. Mirabeau was, in a word, corrupt. He conducted activities that, at least partially, were motivated by personal enrichment and not selfless patriotism. Even if he genuinely thought the monarchy would be lost without him, Mirabeau must be held responsible for his corruption. The champion of the Third Estate may, in his own eyes, have done evil in order to do good, but that doesn't mean we can turn a blind eye to that evil, especially when its source was needless vice and shameless personal enrichment. By March 1791, Mirabeau was at the height of his power. Believing to have won new allies amongst the right for his defeat of the emigration law, the Count fancied his ascendancy to the role of the revolution's popular leader. He intended to curtail the Jacobin Club, to suppress the radical populism infecting Paris, 
and to cement the authority and stability of the new regime. Unfortunately for Mirabeau, he would not get the chance. On the 2nd of April 1791, at the age of 42, the champion of the people was dead. The cause is generally attributed to an illness he had had for some time, which related to his heart, although some did suspect foul play in the form of poison. In a dramatic scene on his deathbed, he told his friend Talleyrand, I carry away with me the last shreds of the monarchy. Whether or not his death did seal the only way to save the French monarchy is a matter of historical debate. But this much is true. Within months of his death, the monarchy would suffer a terrible blow to its authority. Within 18 months of his death, France would be a republic. And within two years of his death, King Louis XVI would be decapitated by his republican replacements. Mirabeau had exited the revolutionary stage. It was now time for King Louis to try to exit revolutionary France. Thank you for listening to episode 20, Death of the Aristocracy. Next week, we'll follow the actions of the king in the wake of Mirabeau's demise. It can be summed up as follows. Run, Forest, run. Now, before you go, if you're enjoying grey history in these times of global lockdown, then there are a few things you can do to help the show. One is by supporting grey history on Patreon. You can find us either on patreon.com or use the link on our website. Donating a dollar or two a show helps much more than you may think, and I really do appreciate any and all support. Secondly, as always, if you've enjoyed the show, please do spread the word to friends, family members, colleagues, revolutionaries, even counter-revolutionaries. Finally, if you're listening to the show through an app that allows reviews, particularly a written review, well then that helps a lot too. If you have any questions or queries, please do send them through, either through the Facebook page or greyhistory.com. Thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.